Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17. We are preaching through the Gospel of John. We have come to this section of the Gospel in chapter 17, which is the account of our Lord's high priestly prayer. We have considered it as perhaps, if not the most, among the most precious sections of all of the Bible, not in that it is more true than the rest, but that in the fact that it lets us enter in, as it were, into the very inner chambers of the Holy of Holies in heaven, and to give our ears to the sublime words voiced by the Son of God in the presence of his righteous and holy Father, words which no creature ought ordinarily to have been privileged to hear, and yet he has granted it to us. Words which the world has no interest to hear, but which as we study them and meditate upon them become our meat and our drink, our courage and our song, and which have already begun to bless the hearts of us who are studying them. Now one commentator, John Brown from Scotland, has organized this chapter in an outline which I believe can be helpful to the understanding of the chapter. And we are approaching our own study roughly with Mr. Brown's outline organization. We may divide the, the chapter and this whole prayer up into four parts. The first part is the address. In the first verse, when the Lord is said to have lifted his eyes to heaven, and said, Our Father. And we've considered something of that address already in this series. The second portion of this prayer is Christ's prayer for himself. And we'll see as we undertake this study the outworking of that prayer, or the petitions that make up Christ's prayer for himself. The third section of this chapter could be considered Christ's prayer for the apostles, as there's an entire section here in which he prays for those particular men whom the Father had given him for the work of the ministry in this world, one of whom had betrayed him, fulfilling the scripture. And then the fourth part of the prayer is Christ's prayer for the church universal, his prayer for us who would believe on him through the word of the apostles. And then there is the conclusion in that last verse or two, which we could call the fifth part, or merely the addendum, or the concluding remarks of the Lord. There is, though, another simpler way to organize it, having told you that, you may want to put Roman numerals this way, the address, the prayer, and the conclusion. The prayer being made up of those three prayers, the prayers for himself, the prayers for the apostles, 
and the prayers for the church universal. The address, the prayer, and the conclusion. Well, under the second large part of this outline, the prayer itself, we are considering Christ's prayer for himself. The first part of his prayer in general, his prayer for himself. And in this prayer for himself, there are two petitions. The first is, he asks God for his own glory. And then the second, that through the Father's glorifying himself, he may thereby glorify the Father. Look with me in verse 2, verse 1. He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. His dual petition for himself is that the Father would glorify him and that through that glorifying of the Son, the Son may achieve the Father's glory. Now in these petitions, which we really may summarize as one petition, the Father's glory, and the subsidiary to that petition, the Son's glory, whereby he can achieve his ultimate request, which is the Father's glory, he attaches four pleas, we may say four arguments, four supporting substantive statements or comments designed to show the rest the appropriateness for the granting of his petition. He's asking that the Father get glory to himself by virtue of glorifying the Son. And in order to lay a good holy argument upon that double petition, he gives four pleas or arguments in his prayer. And they are these. The first, the intimate and endearing relation in which he stands with his Father. He says, Father, glorify thy Son. And we've already, in the address of this prayer, our Father, or Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father, considered this particular plea, our argument, his intimate and endearing relation to his Father, or with his Father. This is a part of his plea for the granting of his request, that the Father glorify him and thereby glorify himself. He is asking the Father to glorify him by virtue at least of his relation to him as his Son, his only begotten, his unique Son. But the second plea for this double petition is this. The appointed time for the granting of this petition has arrived. The appointed time for the granting of this petition has arrived. Not only is in the Lord's thinking his own relation to the Father grounds for receiving an answer to his petition that he be glorified so that the Father can be glorified, but also it is the proper time for that to happen. The hour is come. And it is that in which we are studying, uh, considering right now. That's where we are. We're thinking 
of this second argument or plea or foundational consideration for the granting of this dual petition. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. And here's the argument. I'm your Son. You're my Father in a way no one else can claim. And second, it's time to do it. The hour for the glorifying of the Son through which the glorifying of the Father will be achieved has come. But then before we consider this particular second plea, I want to state the other two pleas so that you'll have something of your mind of an outline of where we're headed. The third plea, our argument, is the appropriateness for granting this petition based first in the authority of the Son of God and second in the purpose for which the authority was given it. Now, I know you're taking notes, some of you, and I'll try to repeat it, but we'll cover this again in the future, God willing. The appropriateness for granting this petition based on the authority that the Son has gotten and the purpose for that authority being given him. You remember in verse 2, <coughs> as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he should give eternal life. The Father has given the Son authority over all flesh. And the Father has given that authority to the Son for what purpose? That he might give eternal life to as many of the people of the sons of Adam that God has given to him to save. He's given authority in order to use that authority to save poor sinners whom God has chosen and loved from eternity. That gives a plea and a reason for the answering of this request. His unique relation to his father, the time is right, and the authority that he gave to the son for saving the world from their sins, it's time to answer this plea. Grant to me glory as I commit myself to the finishing of the work which will accomplish the purpose for which you gave me this authority. Now, we may interject again here. There's a great application for us right here regarding prayer. We've said it recently, but we'll say it again. It is not merely when you think there's a chance you will not get something that you start asking God all the more for it. The time for prayer is not just when you have doubts about something. It is just as much time for fervent, vigorous prayer when you're confident that God is about to give it. He knew what was about to happen. And yet here he is, pouring out his holy soul in fervor, asking the Father for that very thing for which every moment of history had converged. He knows it's going to happen, yet he asks. And he doesn't ask as a matter of fact. He doesn't ask casually. He begs his Father. He gives arguments to his request. Brethren, learn this lesson about your prayers. I do not believe uh, that we're wrong in thinking that much of the reason for unanswered prayer in our time is that many saints pray matter-of-factly. They pray casually. They speak in terms of conversation with God. They speak with God as though He were an equal. They chat with the Lord. They interrupt his schedule and theirs with a passing comment without any fervor, without any earnestness. And part of them use the excuse, God is sovereign. 
And that's why they don't plead with him. They become practical hyper-Calvinists. They believe God's going to do it. Why plead? It seems hypocritical. It's not hypocritical unless something's wrong with the Lord. Here he is pleading with the Father, arguing his case for something that he came into the world to accomplish and that he knew was going to be accomplished. You say, I don't understand that. I'm not asking you to understand that. I'm asking you to live in the light of it and to follow the example of it. When you have a need, you have confidence that God's going to meet the need, all the more earnestly pray that God would do it. Thy kingdom come, we're taught to pray, though he's promised it will. Thy will be done, we are told to pray, though we're confident that it shall. Do you stop praying for it? Or do you diminish the earnestness of your prayer in the light of the promise? No, the promise is designed to enhance the earnestness. I tell you, you can have wonderful times in your closet when you're praying from a sense of God's confident promises. When you have something in you that believes he's about to do what you're asking, you ask all the more what a delight it is to be able to come out of that closet and say, Thank you, Father. You always hear what your saints cry and ask when they pray in truth. Just a good word of application. So the appropriateness of granting these double petitions because of his authority and the purpose for the giving of that authority. But the fourth plea that the Lord uses in asking these petitions is the necessary preparation and prerequisites for the granting of the petition. The necessary preparations have been made. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Why should I be expecting you now to glorify the Son in the ways that the Father and the Son know that the Son is going to be glorified and thereby glorify the Father? Because he has finished the work. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. The preparations and prerequisites for the granting of this petition that you now glorify the Son and bring him into his glory have all been accomplished. It's appropriate for you to answer my request. You see the logic and the clarity of that argument? Here's his double petition. Glorify the Son so the Son may glorify the Father. Here are good reasons why this request ought to be met. Brethren, learn to make holy biblical argument with your God. Don't lay claims on Jehovah which he's not promised to grant. Faith is not believing it's going to happen, even though God has said it wouldn't. Faith is not making something happen by screwing up all the strength of your supposed man or source faith. Faith is not causing God to do something that he was not planning to do. Faith is not getting what you want so bad you can taste it, so God has to give it because you want it so much. Faith is claiming the thing that God has revealed he wills to do and asking for them to be given for the reasons for which he promised them. It's linking our own hearts with God's heart, our own minds with God's mind, and our own purposes with God's purposes, and praying accordingly. It's in that and in that alone that we pray in faith. The claiming of a sick person to be healed and guaranteeing that it'll happen because we can't imagine how God could get glory out of sickness is not biblical. We may ask. We may receive what we ask. But we better not demand. 
We better not use terms like claim it and it's done. This is not the nature of the Son of God. This is not his spirit in this prayer. You don't get that arrogant, self-puffed-up spirit. I'm claiming it! You get an earnest plea using biblical argument. Learn to pray that way, dear brethren. Do not be ashamed of it. Be ashamed if you don't. It takes time to learn it. It takes work to learn it. It takes practice to learn it. But learn it. Commit yourself to learning. And I tell you, you will conquer the world in your closet if you learn to pray this way. You'll step out of your closet and you will be the ruler of your own day rather than the day running you. All the more as you learn to pray this way. You'll have confidence that you've been with God. God has heard you. You have biblical argument and you'll walk with peace. Isn't that what the apostle promises? Let your request be known to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will umpire, rule over your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And to the degree that you've obeyed that counsel, that peace rules over your hearts and minds, doesn't it? And to the degree that you've neglected to follow that advice and counsel and directive, your heart and mind are troubled. The Bible's true. Well, you see these four pleas for this dual petition. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify thee. And we're concentrating on the second of these four pleas, the appointed time for the granting of this petition is now. The hour has come. Now we're considering this phrase or this clause, the hour is come. And last time we sought to understand the identification of the hour. We asked the question, what hour? And let me this week add to that the comments of John Brown as to the identification of that hour. So as again to cultivate and as it were oil our minds and prepare them to think again about this wonderful statement, the hour has come. John Brown says, what hour? An hour the most critical and pregnant with great events since hours had begun to be numbered, since time had begun to run. It was the hour in which the Son of God was to terminate the labors of his important life by a death still more important and illustrious. The hour of atoning by his sufferings for the guilt of mankind. The hour of accomplishing prophecies, types, and symbols which had been carried on through a series of ages. The hour of concluding the old and introducing the new dispensation. The hour of his triumphing over the world and death and hell. The hour of his erecting that spiritual kingdom which is to last forever. And with still greater beauty and force of expression it has been remarked, quote, the greatest events of which our world has been the theater, which the historian has labored to paint and the poet to embellish, the greatest events that will occur till the mystery of God be finished, the creation, the deluge, the judgment, the last conflagration, all combined must yield to the events of this short, this amazing hour. The Son of the Highest, in the form of God, and not thinking it robbery to be equal with God, now, 
in the form of a servant, deserted by his few friends, despised and rejected by men around him. God manifest in flesh, in corporeal and mental anguish, laden with the sins of men, made a sin offering, made a curse, stripped, crowned with thorns, carrying a cross, crucified as a malefactor, dying on his cross, lying lifeless in the grave. These events were crowded into this brief hour. Events not to be paralyzed, paralleled by any which the moral universe can supply. Events which shook our earth, which saved the whole election, which appalled all hell, which gladdened all heaven, and which brought and shall to all eternity bring glory to God in the highest. Could words describe what that hour included? And what must Christ, what must his Father have discerned in this one expression? The hour is come. The point he's making is that all the things for which history had pointed were converged in this hour. The hour has come. And so we identified the hour. And then we explained the divine design for the hour. This was an hour planned. This was not an hour that happened to fall into place. It wasn't even an hour that God, after the facts of history, began panicking and struggling and striving and running about trying to reorganize things to make it happen if he could. It was the hour planned from before the foundation of the world as the Lamb that lay slain before the foundation of the world. No surprise. No contingency plan. God's planned outworking of his saving purpose. A definite time. A specific hour in history. Not that God waited until he saw that most, even all things, had finally come to a place where he now could send his Son but God making all those things produce the hour in which he would send his son. The hour divinely designed. And we suggested further under that heading, not only was it a definite time orchestrated by God, but it occurred according to his irresistible purpose. Because it was divine, it couldn't be resisted. It had to happen. It did happen because God made it happen. Just as surely as your salvation has happened if you're saved today because God made it happen, not because you made it happen. So the Lord Jesus came to work out your salvation and to accomplish it because God did it. Nothing could stop it. Then having considered that, the fact that the hour represents that hour of the culmination of the accomplishment of redemption and the entering in of Christ to his glory, and then seeing that that hour came because it was of divine design, irresistible, we this morning continue by considering in the third place some of the things involved or surrounding this hour. I want you to think with me about some of the things involved in this hour. Now, before we say it, let me quote one other passage. You remember that several times in the Gospels it is stated, this or that happened, 
that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And the Lord said himself, this must happen that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Even in this chapter, he states it regarding the betrayal of Judas. Those that thou hast given me have I lost, lost none except the son of perdition, that the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, I want to say it at the outset. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Do you know why they must be fulfilled? Not just in order for the apologists or the ones who defend the doctrine of the Bible to have some preaching and teaching fodder. Not just in order to give us grounds for supporting our sermons. But the Word of God, the scriptures written, must be fulfilled merely because they are God's words. There is no chance that a word from God will not come to pass. Wasn't that stated to Mary? Whenever it was announced by the angel that she should conceive, she who had never known a man, the virgin conceived, for no word of God shall be void of power, the angel told her when she hardly believed it could happen and questioned it. No word of God shall be devoid of power. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Keep that in mind as we consider this and come to some words of application at the end. The things involved or the things surrounding the hour. Now you see, as the Lord looked upon this hour, he knew all that was going to happen in this hour. When he said the hour has come, and in this passage there's not a hint that he dreads it. There is a hint that he dreads it in Gethsemane. There is that passion of Gethsemane in which the cup is bitter to be drunk, so as to show us not only the fullness of his real humanity, but also to give us an understanding of what it cost him and what it was he tasted for us. And yet there in this passage there's not this idea that he's somehow shrinking back. It's as though he triumphantly is able to say, It's here! The time for which I've lived has come! When he looked at that hour, which he triumphantly expresses here, <coughs> he was well aware of what was about to happen in that hour and all the surroundings of that hour. First of all, some of the things surrounding the first, he was about to be forsaken of his closest friends. Forsaken of his own. He knew it. Turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 5. Mark 14, 5. I think I, put the, I wrote down the wrong text, but it's, it's probably later in, maybe it's in Mark 14, 50. Yes, Mark 14, 50. Add a zero, add a, a, a zero to that five. Remember the night that they came to arrest the Lord in the garden? Remember all the expectation, perhaps, of his apostles, especially Peter and others. They apparently expected that this was going to be a time when the confrontation would be they were not going to let their Lord be crucified. Remember Peter's boastful statement in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi when the Lord began to talk about 
regularly, continually to teach that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and the third day rise. And Peter took him aside and said, Lord, get a hold of yourself. Don't blow it now. Be it far from you that this should happen. Remember that? He rebuked the Lord and was trying to get him straight on theology. Messiah can't die! Remember that? Now, Peter was not a dumb-dumb. He was a fisherman, but he was not the most stupid man in the world. Don't buy that. I've heard it preached in defense of a, the opposition of education. Well, Peter was ignorant and unlearned. No, that meant he was not learned in all the steep traditions of the Pharisees. Doesn't mean he was stupid. The man was aware of the prophecies about Messiah. He was ready to follow Messiah. He expected Messiah to lead them to triumph. James and John thought they'd be soon at the right and the left of a throne somewhere around Jerusalem. And here's Peter saying, Be it far from you, Lord, son of David. I just told you you're the son of God. You forget so quickly. There's that spirit in Peter. You just stick with me, Lord. I'll take care of you. Later, remember, he says, I'll follow you to the death. Because he doesn't really think that death's going to happen. He, he, he says it, but he doesn't understand it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't know what's going to happen in this hour. Jesus does. Simon Peter, though, takes him aside. Don't, you're not going to die. And now the betrayal. And Peter is the first to raise the sword. And trying to whack the man to his death, who gets an ear instead of the whole head. And as Malchus, the servant, moves and loses an ear, Jesus disappoints Peter, apparently. He doesn't say it, but we may, may surmise it. He puts the ear back on. Heals him. Put up your sword. Don't you know I could call legions of angels and be delivered if I wanted? He's already said. Well, what happens to the apostles in that hour when it... It's, here's your chance. Let's get them. High five. There's Peter. And no doubt the sons of thunder right behind him, James and John. They wanted to bring down fire under the Samaritan city. See? Here they are. There's a zealot in the apostle, Simon the Zealot, one who had been a revolutionary, one who wanted to overthrow the government by force and was welcoming the Messiah and expected Messiah to cooperate with him probably at the beginning. Jesus frustrates all that. Every time they think he ought to stand up and take his place and announce his authority and get power and wipe out his enemies, he keeps blowing So it says here at the conclusion in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. You can go back at another time and read that account. But here he is talking to these men and saying, why do you come out against me as a robber? I was with you in the temple daily teaching. You didn't take me. But this is done that the scripture may be fulfilled. And now it apparently occurs to these apostles this man truly believes that his arrest and this unjust trial is according to the scripture. He's lost it. And they flee. Something happened to them. I don't know all that they were thinking. But they were offended at him and they fled. Here is Peter, James, John, whom he had taken into those intimate times and intimate places into a room for the raising of the dead when all the others were put out into the Mount of Transfiguration, where they beheld something of the foretaste of his glory. And they alone were able to behold it. The three he took with him further in the garden, and then the others, here they are, and they leave him. 
The Lord Jesus knew this was going to happen. He was a prophet. He knew Zechariah chapter 13, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14, 27, he predicted it. He quoted it and he told the apostles. He told Peter before the cock crow in the morning, before the sun comes up, before the things attending the sunrise, you're going to deny me. You claim that you'll never leave me, but you're boasting beyond your knowledge. I'm telling you, the devil himself has demanded to sift you as wheat. You don't know what's going on in the spiritual world, Peter. You speak carnally. That's how he rebuked him, remember? When Peter said, be it far from you, he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not talking the things of God now. You're speaking from man's vantage point. And at this stage in his life, Peter was more prone to speak that way than to speak heavenly. The revelation of his heavenly comments were rare. These earthly and carnal comments were typical. Aren't many of you like that, Phil? And don't you need to learn and grow in thinking heavenly and spiritually and thinking from God's vantage point rather than from your own? Lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart because they, the two of those, leaning to your own understanding on the one hand, trusting God with all your heart, are incompatible with each other. You can't trust God and depend on your own understanding at the same time. You can't go against biblical counsel and biblical preaching and the surrounding of biblically proven men at the same time trust God. It's amazing how we rest the scriptures. We say, well, though all the proven guides have said I shouldn't do this, I'm going to trust God and do it anyway. But see, the Bible makes that impossible. You're not trusting God when you go against biblical counsel. You're leaning to your own understanding. The apostles did. The Lord knew they would. And they left him, forsaken of his best friend, his closest one, his intimate companion, those to whom he had revealed wonderful things, forsaken. But also forsaken of his own, one of the twelve betrayed him. He knew that it was going to be Judas. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He opened it up to them in John chapter 13. It tells us in that passage that Satan entered John, uh, Judas. It tells us about this ruthless and vicious murderer and liar from the beginning, the devil himself, who entered into Judas, entered into him, as it were, took possession of the man, who all the time had been frustrated by Jesus' refusal to make them rich. Remember when he used, when he accepted the precious ointment? And Judas was offended. He said, you should have given this, they could have given this to the poor. We wasted all of them. And then John says, or one of the apostles says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. Now he said he cared about the poor. But Judas Iscariot was much like many politicians in our day, who in the name of helping the poor are fiddling their coffers and fattening their belts. It says he didn't say it because he cared for the poor, but because he carried the money box and was a thief and took away the things therein. He already was pilfering all the way back then. Don't think Jesus didn't know it. Why would the Lord forbid himself to such a man? Such a scriptures might be fulfilled. You say, I don't gather that. Well, there's a lot of things you don't gather, my friend. There are a lot of things about God and the Word of God you haven't figured out and will not figure out until perhaps glory. Don't be alarmed at that. You're not supposed to be God, are you? 
You don't have to know everything, do you? But you do need to believe it all and receive it all. And the Lord saw it. He saw the forsaking of his friends, this wretched betrayal of this wicked thief and hypocrite whom he had done nothing to but love and help, trusted him with the money, kissed, received a kiss from him in the garden, knowing he was coming to betray him with a kiss. Knew it was going to happen. You still what are you getting at? I'm telling you, this was not a, an easy pill to swallow. The thing surrounding this hour was not something pleasant. You, know, you, you may not comprehend it. Maybe you've never had a trusted friend turn on you. Maybe you've never been left naked. Or somebody to whom you trusted your whole self just took you and beat you and mashed you and left you for death. Maybe you've never known what it means to depend on someone's word and then because they weren't honest, they're gone. Your word didn't fulfill itself. Maybe you're the one that's been breaking your word and leaving people standing in the lurch. Maybe you're that way so you can't see it when others do it. Maybe your conscience is so dull that you've lived that way that all you can think of is yourself. But I tell you, the Lord knew it and his holy heart felt the full way to being forsaken by his trusted friends. He also knew that Peter was going to deny him. You think that didn't hurt him? He had already been in spiritual war for Peter. Now you think about this for a minute. You think of the person that you have trusted the most in your life and the person with whom you've been most intimate. Think about that person for a minute. And you think of finding in that person's diary or in a private letter a stated intent to pull something on you in a couple of weeks in which he's going to empty your bank account, take your kids, burn your house, and leave you holding the bag and taking the blame. You think how it makes you feel about that person? The shock! The confusion! The grief! The anger! The fear! The vengeance! How am I going to stop it? But often doesn't it settle in at the point of fear, I mean anger? And ordinarily, it ends up settling in at the point of, how could he do this? How could he do this? And so you want to do something back. How did the Lord respond to Judah's private letters? How did he respond to his intimate knowledge that the devil had said, I want Peter? And how did the Lord respond to Peter when he knew Peter, who should never have done such a thing, was going to pretend he'd never met Jesus after all his loyalty? He's going to say, I don't know the guy. When it comes down to Peter's neck, he's running. If he's going to be arrested too, not enough. I'll fall into the death. He couldn't even get past the campfire. Jesus saw it all before it happened. Knew it all. How did he receive it and respond to it? He said, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And after you're turned again, strengthen your brother. I know what you're going to do to me, and rather than give vent to the passion of anger against you and not cooperate with you and leave you to yourself, I've interceded for you to see to it that they won't kill you and frustrate you and end up with your ultimate fall. Jesus Christ has known what you were going to do to him on those Sunday mornings when you didn't want to be here. 
because your heart loves something better. He saw that when he died. He saw how you were going to give your Saturday nights to things that would make it virtually impossible to stay awake on Sunday morning when his worship was due him. He knew that was going to, he knew he was dying for that before you ever did it. He knew all the lies you were going to tell to cover your tracks when people began to probe and catch you in your sin. He knew the hypocrisy. He knew the filthy thoughts. He died for those things. He knew them. He felt their weight. He knew you children were going to disobey the parents he gave you and dishonor them and fuss at them when he gave them to you to help you and protect you and feed you and clothe you and put a house over you and pray for you and love you and pet you and tolerate you and put up with you and spank you because they care to direct your life so it won't be destroyed and he knew you were going to be unthankful he knew there were going to be times you didn't appreciate it and didn't think about it he knew all that that was a part of this hour in which those sins were going to be heaped on his back and he was going to see the expression of them in his closest friends as they forsook him he knew how many times at your job you have cowed down rather than take a stand and say it the way it is because you didn't want to lose your money. And you've played games with somebody that had purse string control because you were afraid of your job more than of God and of that person's soul. He saw it all. The hour has come when I'm about to be forsaken of my friends, betrayed by one of the twelve, denied by Peter. But a second thing involved in this hour, he knew he was going to be persecuted by his enemies. Not only forsaken of his own, but persecuted by his enemies. In Matthew 16, as we've suggested, Peter was told by the Lord Jesus that the Son of Man is going to be suffering many things and to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and to the rulers and the Gentiles and be killed and the third day be raised up. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. I don't mean to make too much of this. I just want you to feel something of the weight of it. What was involved in this hour? Matthew 26, verse 67. All that we're about to read, the Lord had seen it before. Before it happened, he had felt the weight of it. He came into the world for this kind of treatment. Verse 67 of Matthew 26, Then, then did they spit in his face and buffet him. Have you ever had anyone spit in your face and buffet you? And some smote him with the palms of their hands. What high audacity. They didn't know who they was mighty. Saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that struck you? They had blindfolded him. They were making him play uh, an unholy pin the tail on the donkey game. They struck him, buffeted him mocked him, spit in his face and told him, tell us who did it. All convinced he couldn't tell them because he wasn't who he claims to be. 
And yet he had already seen who was doing it and knew every name and every hair on every head. He made those tongues. He made those palms. And he came into the world with full knowledge that he was going to have the brunt of that spittle in his face and those palms on his cheek. He's going to suffer many things. Turn over to chapter 27, verse 27. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered unto him the whole band. Here's a whole orchestra of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And they planted a crown of head and a reed in his right hand. They made him look like a king. And they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! No doubt laughing and whatever, perhaps even partying in connection with this. And they spat upon him. They took the reed and smote him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took off from him the robe and put on his own garments and led him away to crucify. Mark, we've had our fun. Let's get rid of the guy. He knew this was going to happen. He knew that his enemies, who hated everything good and pure and holy in life, and lived their lives for nothing but Friday night and Saturday night, and NFL football on Sunday afternoon, or a little bit more work on Sunday where they could make a little more money so they could have a little more of this world. He knew all of those people who had collected their counsel against him were going to persecute him. Would you stand for that? He not only stood for it, he welcomed it. He ran into the face of it. But third, not only did he know his forsake, he would be forsaken of his own and persecuted by his enemies, but he also knew that this hour involved humiliation by the powers of darkness themselves. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Now, I trust that you don't believe that I am overly belaboring this issue. I want to drive it home to our hearts and our consciences so we'll feel it. What in his mind he meant when he said, the hour has come. I want us to know what he meant when he said, the hour has come. Humiliation by the powers of darkness. Luke chapter 22, verse 53. Here they are again in Gethsemane, according to Luke's account. Verse 53, he says, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched not forth your hands against me. He's looking at these hypocrites. They're cowardly in public. They know they have no case against him. But then he says, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Brethren, do you understand what Jesus understood was going on here? This was the devil's hour in which he was collecting all of the kings of the earth and the heathen world against the Lord and his anointed. Why have the heathen raged and taken counsel against the Lord and his anointed? That passage is quoted in Acts whenever the church gets together and cites it back to God when they're asking for him to give boldness to the preachers. The Lord Jesus knew that the devil 
was in his heyday here. Here was the devil's hour. The hour of... Can you understand what it must have felt like to the heart of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to allow the devil to have an hour like this? That is power. This is your hour. And the, and the power of darkness. And to have God have to pay the price for that hour. That you and I let into the world with our rebellion and our disobedience and our pride and our unbelief. And then to give that power, the devil himself and all of his hosts this hour, and let them have their day. Now, I'm not unaware of the fact he knew this wasn't the last word, but brethren, he drank the full dregs of that consciousness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. He knew he was about to be humiliated. He saw beneath those spits and those slaps and those taunts and saw the devil laughing at him. Would you tolerate it if you didn't have to? In John chapter 13, he saw, we don't turn there, but there are two different occasions there when we see the devil putting it into the heart of Judas and then entering Judas. It was the devil's day! Or at least it seemed so. Have you had the picture in your mind of those who rejoice when righteous men are removed from the world or from their faces? When the righteous preacher no longer can yell into their ears things they do not want to hear? Brethren, have you ever thought about what... Have you seen the picture of how the world feels when the righteous fall? Oh, they dance in the streets. They rejoice. That's what the Revelation is speaking of that we read a few weeks back. They won't suffer the two witnesses to be buried and they have a party over their dead bodies lying in the streets. The devil rejoices and has parties when righteousness is snuffed out. Oh, what a triumph. The Roe versus Wade decision was to powers of darkness that had been working behind the scenes for decades to bring that hour back. What a triumph it was to get the word God out of curricula. How they rejoiced that now we all have freedom unless we believe there's a God. We have freedom to read anything we want unless it's the Bible. No censorship unless you're a preacher of the gospel. No discrimination against the church uh, uh, that believes anything it wants. Unless it believes things we don't want to hear for our consciences. And let that church try to find property. Let that church preach. Let it pass out tracts. We'll We'll call upon every law we can find to eliminate its freedoms. And we'll have a picnic and a party over our new freedoms we won today. They love to rejoice over it. He knew this was about to happen. But the devil and his crowd were going to have a party over Jesus. Humiliated by the powers of darkness. You see, all this humiliation had its source in hell. And the Lord saw that. But he also knew one other thing. Not only would he be forsaken of his own, persecuted by his enemies, humiliated by the powers of darkness, 
but he knew that he would be rejected by the father who loved him. You're familiar with Psalm 22? The Lord was familiar with it. He breathed it. He breathed it out to the prophet. He drank it in, in his own experience. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, who appealed to his own unique, glorious, blessed relationship to his Holy Father as the ground or a part of the ground for the answering of this prayer, is aware that that unique and holy and sweet and blessed loving relation is about to be severed. And his Father whom he loves and in whom he delights, who from all eternity has looked upon him with nothing but the highest conceivable favor and sweetness, is about to turn his face away from him, reject him, and pour out upon him all his holy wrath against our sin. He felt it and knew it was coming. That's the hour. I'm about to be rejected of my father. He's addressing the one with this full consciousness that it's about to occur, that the one whom he's praying to is going to turn his back on him. My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? I want to just add a, an addendum, or just an insertion here. Have you, have you ever asked the question? Aren't we told that Jesus when he died on the cross and received the wrath of his father, actually satisfied and satiated all of God's wrath against his people, against their sins for all eternity, and he fulfilled what eternity in hell would have fulfilled? Have you ever asked the question, how could that one short time on the cross satisfy eternity in hell? Have you ever asked that? Some have asked it, but have been afraid to ask it. You know what one of the old writers said? It's like comparing gold and brass when you're making payment. You may pay the same amount in either commodity, but the gold takes up a lot less space because of the superiority of its worth. If you can understand that it's not how long it lasts, but the virtue of it as the Father who from eternity past, if we can use the two terms, past and eternity together, had never known what it meant to be with anything other than his sweet, perfect communion with his beloved delight, his son. And the son, who had known nothing but utter bliss and glory with his father, where they rejoiced together in all that had ever happened, all of a sudden now, the father and the son were severed and estranged, broken, irretrievably separated because the son is now considered to be guilty of all the sin of his collected people of all time. And the father in his holy righteousness can do no other than reject him and pour out upon him in that one hour all the everlasting wrath that was due us and that we would have experienced had he not stepped into our place. You say, Pastor, it doesn't make sense that in one hour 
or in three hours or in six hours or in three days, Jesus could take an eternity of punishment. It may not make sense, but the Bible declares that it's so. And what that ought to teach you is who this person really is. You see, you don't learn from what you already know. You learn from what God says for you to learn. You don't take your little brain and figure out what, what part of the Bible can make sense. And when it makes sense, then you can believe it. God shows us and tells us that in that short time, He bore eternal wrath. I cannot see it. My computer will not compute it. But it is so because of the virtue of the sacrifice and because of the torrent of the wrath and because of the nature of the case. And the Lord Jesus knew when he said, The hour is come. Every bit of it. He understood it. He saw it. I wanted to do much more. I wanted to open up to you the devil's opposition to this hour. I wanted then to show you the Lord's welcome commitment to the hour. But I don't have time. And what I do want to do is summarize and make application as I can. What I want to say to you is that with this full knowledge of the things surrounding this hour, your Redeemer entered the world and in his eternal love for poor sinners, just like you, he willingly endured with full faculties all the shame, all the pain, all the rejection of his creation with the unmingled wrath of his loved, beloved Father. I ask you a question. In the light of such willingness and readiness to save and such power to control the events of history, is there any chance that he cannot save anybody in this place that today will break your pride and repent and come to him? Is there any chance he would not if you come? Do you truly believe that you, have, you can bring a case against yourself that can be surmounting to the case Christ has brought on your behalf? Can your sin outweigh his suffering? Can your unrighteousness overcome his righteousness? Can you find one thing you did sometime in the past for which the Lord Jesus' blood is not worthy to cleanse? Can you pile up a complicated life full of such things if you had done nothing but that all your life without cessation? Could you believe that it would be virtuously more and more worthy than the blood of Christ which was shed to wash it all clean? Is there some secret sin in the recesses of your conscience that you are afraid to confess because somehow you think maybe God hasn't seen it? You're stupid if that's the case. Or secondly, because you're afraid that if you say it and he sees it said in all of its core that he just wouldn't dare forgive such filth, I'm telling you. The Son of God who saw all of yourself and saw it about to be poured upon himself and saw that he was about to be rejected of the Father for it so you would not be 
willingly came and gave himself for that very collected number of sin and the infinite worth of your sin and it's all of its desert of wrath and he took it he drank the cup to its dregs he finished it he finished the work the wrath of God is satisfied against all the sinners who ever did or ever will come to him in faith there's nothing that hinders you this morning you drop your religious attachment and that gives you a little pride that you're not as bad as other guys are you forget looking at this other person and comparing yourself with that person saying, well, look at what she did. Look at what he did. I'm as righteous as she. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You stop looking back and trying to find a few good things you did. Don't congratulate yourself that you're sitting here this morning listening to a sermon of the Bible. You'll not be saved by doing that. God's not impressed. God knows more of your guilt and your filth than you'll ever be able to figure out in this world. He knows things about you you're going to commit that you've never thought about committing. Just as he did with Peter and Judas and us. And yet his son did not withhold himself, but he gave himself for those sins which he knew. Not only that his people had committed but which he knew they would commit, the specific individual sins of his specific individual people. And do you think when the Father raised his Son from the dead and the Son took his life again and walked out of that tomb, having delivered us from our sins, that he would ever, for one reason or any, reject any who would come to him and say, Lord, to thee only I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. I have no hope in myself. I have no intention ever again of pointing to myself. I look to you, you alone. Surely you are the Savior. Surely you redeem. Surely you will deliver me from all my iniquities. Here I am, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I, de- I tell you, my dear friends, if there's one person that ever did that in that spirit and was turned away, nothing is real. Nothing is true. Neither are we here. God doesn't exist. And this room is not present. The Bible says it. I know it to be so. I offer you Christ. Don't stay where you are. Don't abide in your stubbornness, in your self-righteousness. Don't perish in your sin. You have a Savior. Lay claim upon Him. And come to Christ. And He'll receive you. Let us pray.